Hey everyone, I'm Chris Hadley and welcome to another edition of the Viewfinder Podcast. Before we get started, I know it's been quite some time since the last episode of this show, but given where we are at this extraordinary point in time, I want you to know that I am doing well, as is my family, and I hope that wherever you might be listening to the show right now, you and yours are all staying safe and healthy amid the COVID-19 epidemic. Now on to today's guest. Actor and filmmaker Brie Castellini has shared her enormous talents in front of and behind the camera through web series projects like Brains and Sam and Pat are Depressed, both of which she created, co-starred in, wrote, produced, and edited. Plus impressive short films including Ace and Anxious and the recently released suspense thriller Buy In. Aside from her creative work, Castellini has also helped her peers in the indie film and web series communities to find their own paths to success, both as community director for web series aggregator Sterable from 2017 to 2019, and now as the film community manager for crowdfunding platform Seed and Spark. From 2016 to 2017, Castellini also served as an associate producer for digital development at MTV. She's also been teaching new generations of web series creators and screenwriters all about the craft of creating effective digital content as an adjunct professor at both Stevens College and LIU Brooklyn. Yet that's barely scratching the surface of Castellini's outstanding career history and her passion for the art of filmmaking. She's also a dear friend of mine who I've had the privilege of interviewing many times for the web series blog that I write for, Snobby Robot, and my own personal indie film blog on Medium. I'm honored to have her on the podcast today. Bree, welcome to the show. Thank you so much, Chris. That was a lovely introduction. And even as you were talking, I was like, man, I've done, I have done a lot. But yeah, it's it's exciting. I'm, I'm glad to finally get to, to chat for one of our interviews instead of just exchanging, you know, emails and Facebook messages. This is really fun. Yeah, I'm indeed. excited to get into it. Me too. First of all, what inspired you to become a filmmaker and how did you first break into the industry? Oh, wow. Well, I would, I would, I I don't know if I would describe myself as someone who has truly broken into the industry, given that unfortunately, I am still as of yet not a, like, full time creator. But in terms of what got me into filmmaking, um, it was sort of an accident. Uh, When I was in college, I was studying creative writing, I have a Bachelor of Arts in creative writing, um, but I was uh, prose focused. So I was writing novels and poetry and stuff like that. And I was all set to like start my life as a barista slash part-time novelist until I got famous enough at the novelist part. But about three quarters of the way through my college degree, um, I was home for the summer and I was doing a lot of roller skating for some reason. This is important, I swear. And, you know, because I was trying to just like be active and like, you know, get, get, past the time and I needed something to be listening to while I did it and music wasn't quite distracting enough and I would get bored and just go home so I started listening to podcasts for the first time and one of the podcasts that I listened to most often was called the Nerdist Writers Panel uh, now just Writers Panel uh, because I think they've they've broken off from the Nerdist uh, umbrella Uh, that's a podcast that probably your audience knows about uh, because it is a TV writers panel um, podcast where writers from various television shows come together and talk about their craft and their careers. And I wasn't interested in television writing when I was listening to it. I was just listening as a fan of television. But as I listened to this podcast, people kept talking about like 
the process of writing television and how they got into it and like the sort of intricacies of breaking an episode. And as I was listening, I was like, oh my God, this is the kind of writing that I want to do. How had I not seen this before? I watch more TV than I read books at this point. So why am I writing books? I need to write TV. So I, uh, after, after college, I got into a graduate program for writing and producing for television here in New York, where I still live, unfortunately, for <laughs> the time that it is right now. And I uh, basically did a hard pivot. So it was always about writing for me, but um, it was a pretty hard pivot from, you know, my aspirations of being a novelist to aspirations of being a filmmaker. Um, it just sort of happened at the right time when I, I was looking for a way to connect with what I was doing a little bit more. And then in my graduate program, um, I was really enjoying writing scripts and writing pilots. But for one semester, our, our second semester, we had to write and produce a web series pilot. And I'd never produced anything before. I'd never really been on a real film set. Like I'd done some goofy YouTube videos in college, but outside of that, I had no understanding of like what the difference between a director and a director of photography was. I didn't understand what a producer did or how they were different from an assistant director and all of the, I had no idea what I was doing, but the, I made the brains pilot, the brains web series pilot for school and just fell in love with the whole process. And from there it was sort of, sort of over for me. I was like, well, I have to keep doing this forever. And um, well, so far I have. <laughs> Thank you. How was being part of work? How was working on Stray and Over Under and History and shows like that? How did that help you to prepare for the challenges and responsibilities of making content of your own? Well, so like I mentioned, uh, I, had, I had already made, by the time I did stray and over under in particular. I had already produced the first season of Brains. I had produced the first season of Relativity, which was written and directed by my good friend Chris Cherry. Um, and I think we might have actually shot Brain season two by that point too. So I had already done a pretty substantial amount of producing on my own. It was definitely interesting though, stepping back from something that I was so close to, like Brains, to being uh, a kind of more of a, just a part of a team on a different production. Like there was definitely a learning curve for me because going from being in charge to not being in charge at all um, is not a, a path that you usually take. You usually start like you're saying with, you know, being a part of somebody else's crew and then making your own. But I, I started by being the executive producer and creator of something. So stepping back was kind of weird and I liked it. I like, as I, I learned more, I, I realized that, you know, I did enjoy getting to kind of support someone else's vision, not just my own, but it definitely taught me a lot about how different of an approach it is to bring someone else's thing to life versus bringing your own thing. And as much as I loved those productions, um, and I, I like Stray especially is like so up my alley in terms of its comedy, you know, Pablo Andreu who created that show, he's so, so funny. Um, but ultimately, you know, you're never gonna love someone else's baby as much as you love your own. And I worked incredibly hard on all of these projects and I loved getting to be a part of bringing them to life. But 
every time I was on someone else's set, all I wanted to do was be on my own. You know, I, I wanted to go write a new thing and be on my own set. I wanted to be in charge again. I was constantly inspired by all of the funny things that were happening on those projects and all the things I was learning. And all I could do was just like hold myself back to want to rush home and write a whole new script because I was so inspired by all of the new things I was learning and all of the things that people were doing differently from me, sometimes for the better, sometimes for the worse, so that I could make my own productions even that much stronger. Going back a ways before you even got started in web series, who were some of your biggest creative influences in filmmaking? And how did your diverse work background, you mentioned, of course, that you were a barista, mm -hmm. but you were also a healthcare activities assistant, a summer camp counselor, a writing tutor, a social media consultant mm -hmm. when you were at Pacific University. How did all that influence the way you approach your craft and your own creative point of view as seen through the work that you've done. That's interesting. So um, before I made web series, I really didn't have uh, like a filmmaking influence because I didn't, even when I went into my graduate program for television writing, I wasn't really, I didn't have my eye on production. Like I, I knew that we were going to eventually cover a web series like class, but I had no concept for what it meant to be a filmmaker. I knew what it meant to be a writer. I've been a writer since I was five years old, and I know how to tell stories and make them fun on a page. But in terms of coming to life, I never really paid attention to that aspect. So unfortunately, I don't have a good answer for that, uh, at least beforehand, like before I started producing. But in terms of how my work history influenced my writing, um, I think that it definitely is a matter of, you know, I don't know how to answer that. Barista-ing was probably the most directly influential into my eventual filmmaking, only because I dragged a lot of my coworkers from my first job in New York, which was as a barista, into being uh, members of the Brains cast. So Sophie, the character of Sophie, uh, is was one of my first friends in New York who worked with me at the coffee shop. And the character of Rita, who is like consistently falling asleep on duty in Brains, uh, was also a co-worker of ours, got hired on the same day as I was actually. And I, yeah, I don't think that my work history influenced my writing so much as my uh, my education history. And I don't mean my writing education. Uh, I was a competitive speech and debate person for six years. I did two years of speech and debate in high school, and I did four years in college. I even had a scholarship to college uh, for speech and debate. And I think that is what has most directly influenced my artistic styles, because learning how to concisely get to the point of an argument, of a statement, and learning how to be confident in a you know, group of people you've never met, even in a, on a subject you're not really an expert on, but still needing to be seen as an authority figure, like that has helped me probably more than anything else. Because, you know, once, once I made my transition from simply writer to writer director, as I was on my, my two short films that you mentioned, my speech and debate training was really what kept me on track because when you're the director, everyone's looking to you for answers and you are ultimately responsible for making sure that you like get through the day and you get all the shots that you need and they all fit together in the right way. And there's a lot of times where you're just standing on set and three people are asking you three different questions and you just have to like take a deep breath and 
take it one at a time. And that's something that I don't think I would have been able to do uh, as Brie prior to speech and debate practice. Speech and debate really gave me the confidence and the rhetorical tools to organize my thoughts and express them clearly, even if I'm not 100% sure of myself. Did that training help you when you were in front of the camera as an actor? A little bit. I mean, definitely, you know, being able to speak clearly and enunciate is important. Uh, and also, you know, I, I'm glad you brought that up because it, it's funny that when you introduced me, I was an actress and filmmaker. And I was like, wow, I would not describe myself as an actor. I frequently, like when people ask what I do on my projects, it's the last thing I mention or I say it like kind of sheepishly. I feel bad because I, I did a lot of acting in high school and a little bit in college. You know, I was in plays and in theater. I did a tiny amount of improv, God help us all. Um, so I was definitely, but I would consider myself more of a performer than I would an actor. And that's why like my short films, I am not in. I do not act in my short films because I prefer directing. But yeah, it's funny that you bring up acting because yeah, I don't always consider myself an actor. I think I do okay. It helps that the only times I've really acted have been in scripts that I write for myself. So I'm just writing me, but like a slightly heightened version of me, which is easier than playing a truly new character. And I, I still to this day, despite all of the acting experience I've had, struggle with the acting part of the whole equation. And some of that is probably due to the fact that anytime I'm acting, I'm also producing, you know, editing, you know, eight other things on setting. So it's hard to just focus on acting. But also, I, I feel like I feel like an imposter because I've seen such wonderful performers uh, like next to me in scenes like Marshall Taylor Thurman on Brains. He is so committed as an actor. He has such a power over his craft or, you know, uh, Colin Hinckley, who uh, acted also beside me in Brains, but then I got to direct in a number of projects. Uh, and they're both such like truly tremendous actors. You get to watch their face change like so subtly, but so specifically. And I, I'm sitting in a scene with them and I'm like, I am an imposter. I should not be here. Why am I acting and next to somebody who is so talented? Because I, I feel like I'm a good performer and I learned that from Speech and Debate. I can, you know, get a room excited and in my jobs at Sterrible and now at Seed and Spark and I guess technically for the, the classes that I teach now, like I'm good at keeping a room of people engaged Aged, but that's, I feel like that's a different muscle. So I don't think there's a lot of future for me in acting because my, my strength is as a performer, as someone who can keep people entertained, but I don't think I'm necessarily very good at embodying a character in a moment. I'm always, I'm thinking about too many things. I'm a, I'm good as a director as a result of that, but as an actor, you really need to be able to focus. And I don't think I do that very well. I, I'm happy with the performances that I gave in Brains and in Sam and Pat, but I am excited to not do so much acting in the future, I have to say. <laughs> totally understandable, but I think you did a great job. With your well, thank you. On Brains and on the next show that you created, Sam and Pat are depressed, you were not only the co-star, but also you created, you wrote, you produced and edited both shows. Mm -hmm. And in how did you end up balancing all those responsibilities on top of your on-camera work? Well, it was hard, especially because for all but one season of Sam and Pat and all of Brains, I also ran sound. <laughs> 
So I wasn't just acting. I was also the one running sound. I was the one starting and stopping the mixers and taping the mics on everyone. And like that was the worst multitasking I had to do. Like producing and acting is hard enough because you have to be concerned about not just how you're doing in the scene, but also like if the day is moving along quickly enough and if you've gotten all the shots that you need and like is everyone in their places and did the extras show up on time, like all these things. So it was definitely a challenge to balance all of that. And I'm lucky that I had such strong collaborators at my side. Um, My director on both Brains and Sam and Pat, Andrew Williams, was a great force because he had a lot more film making experience than I did at the beginning and that I relied on that a lot. Um, My co-star in Chris Cherry is always so comforting because we are very different people, but also the same person, which was nice. Um, On Brains, it was definitely, it was both easier and harder to balance all of these different roles. Easier because I didn't know what I was doing, so I didn't know all the things I was doing wrong. I was just moving forward at as fast of a speed as I could, and that kind of that carried us through a lot of things that should have completely shut us down. But it was also harder because that show had so many characters and so many locations, and we had stunts and we had special effects makeup, like all things considered, we should not have made that show. There is no humanly reason that that should have happened. Certainly not two seasons worth of it. Like, it is crazy that that was the first thing that we decided to do. And it was only through, like, youthful ignorance that we managed to make it through without completely losing our minds. And we were close at times. Sam and Pat, definitely, you can see a much more uh, restrained approach to filmmaking. You know, one location, two characters, like, very small, like, production ambitions. Um, and that that's a result of me knowing, I think, maybe too much about the production aspect. And so that made it easier to produce just because there were fewer moving parts. We could just really focus on what was happening on screen, making sure like the couple of vid- you know really funny visual gags we were doing, we're going to really nail it. And we didn't have to worry about having like a huge cast and crew. We, it was just like, if me and Chris knew our lines and Andrew and our DP were like, in agreement on what shots we were getting that day, we could all just really focus on the craft. And that that was definitely a relief. I really enjoy working on Sam and Pat because it's so, just because it's a much smaller production doesn't mean it's any less intricate because we're doing a lot more with a lot less. We're doing a lot more ambitious shots. We're doing a lot more ambitious comedy. And that's been really fun to kind of take a step back from like the, the absolute chaos that was the brain set and really get to like focus on the small things that go far in um, in the Sam and Pat universe. As a screenwriter, you've described your style as being, quote, comedy that errs on the side of dramedy, taking absurd and sometimes supernatural themes and putting unimpressed female protagonists at the center. Mm-hmm. How did you go about developing and refining that style over the years across all the projects you've done? And how has it manifested itself in your acting performances? Yeah, well, I think... I don't think I set out to have that brand, as it were, because something that I've really struggled with, especially as I've started to produce content for the internet and like have a small fan base like crop up around me, something I've really struggled with is the fact that it's hard to align the work that I do along a, you know, a single path. Like I do so many different things, you know, Brains is a zombie apocalypse found footage ensemble comedy series. Sam and Pat is a two person single room, not really supernatural at all comedy series about mental health. Ace and Anxious is a short film 
uh, about mental health. So that those two are more aligned than anything else. And then buy-in is a psychological horror, uh, pretty straight up drama. So, you know, the thread between someone who's a fan of brains and somebody eventually being a fan of something else that I do uh, is not as clear as I think people would have instructed me to be. But what I've discovered in my process is that I, for all the chaos that I put out into the world. I am a very structured person. I'm a very type A person. So I really like taking something that I've seen done way too much, like say zombies. You know, zombies have been done to death. There's 18 billion other kinds of zombie media out there in comic books, in TV shows, in movies. And, you know, to the point where people are like, I'm kind of over zombies. And I love it when people say that because I'm like, this is my moment. I like taking something that has been done to death and then finding something new in it. It's like, it's it's almost like a math equation where you're looking at like, these are all of the variables that have been taken you know, care of. This is stuff that somebody else has already covered. So what, what is left? And how can I make a story interesting out of that? And for me, <laughs> what usually makes fantastical things like unique, even when they've been done to death in other mediums, is putting someone who's so thoroughly unimpressed by what's going on around them at the center. And, you know, I identify as a woman, so that person is basically always a woman. I just think that that's really funny to take something that, like, has been spun off in so many different ways, like zombies. And, like, every time you see zombies in a movie, everyone's so freaked out and everyone's so panicked. And it's, like, it's so scary and everyone's taking it really seriously. But, like, the, the idea that somebody would be at the center of a zombie horror movie and be like, yeah, that's like bad or whatever, but I what I'm really interested in is getting a boyfriend. That's just, that concept is so funny to me. And it's been that version basically throughout the rest of my writing. So Ace and Anxious is an unimpressed woman who's like, you know, she she's at the center of like a pretty hard mental health time for herself. And she's like, cool, cool, cool. I'm going to use science to use sex to cure my anxiety. Like she, she is so unimpressed by her diagnosis. And she's like, this is annoying. Anxiety is annoying and I want to get over it. It's not, she's not, you know, taking it in the way that I think most media takes depression and anxiety, you know, where it's like really dark contrast cinema, cinematic moments of her just like clutching her chest. Like not to say that those depictions aren't accurate, but I feel like they're a little bit overdone and a little bit overdramatic because my experience of having a mental illness is how frustrating it is. Like it's not sad. It's frustrating because there are things that you just can't do and you can't get over it. And it's not always connected to something tangible. And I hate things not being connected to something tangible. Why can't I just do something about it? Uh, and that was sort of the perspective of that character. Sam and Pat are depressed are two people who have similar reactions, but decide instead of trying to fix things to just be like rude to each other and do very strange things in their apartment to like distract themselves from their mental illness. And um, buy-in is not quite a good example of that. Although the character Sam in buy-in, uh, the female character, I kind of took ownership of her pretty early on in the draft writing because Colin Hinckley and I co-wrote that together. But the character of Sam was really mine. And she was someone who is in this like very strange and tense situation. And when it's the two boys in the film, when it's just them, it's very like dark and very slow. And then as soon as Sam comes in, she's like, what the fuck are you two doing? What is this? This is so weird. Let's just go. And uh, that's very much my, like, I, I guess my process is I put myself at the center of very bizarre things because I feel like the way that I would react 
to the various circumstances that occur in my writing would be like, what's happening with this? Let's everybody stop. This is crazy. Why are we taking this so seriously? This is actually very silly. And uh, and that's kind of just the process that I write in. But I am also a person who I like to start with comedy and not taking things seriously. And then by the end, like get really serious. I find that that is a lot more rewarding because if it's just surface level funny, I have a hard time like finding narrative stakes in that. So what frequently ends up happening is that like, you know, Brains, for example, like Brains starts out with this girl who's just like making jokes about the apocalypse. Like I want a boyfriend. And then like that season ends with like her, spoiler alert, I guess, her best friend like near death and like her uh, finding out that somebody she holds in really high regard is like a legit murderer and like it goes to dark places season six of brains if i had ever gotten to make it goes into like a governmental coup so i that i i don't really have an understanding of how i get there it's just sort of my process is start with something very funny and shocking and then end on something really like poignant because otherwise i don't know where to go uh, same with Sam and Pat, I would say. Sam and Pat starts with like, ha ha, isn't depression funny and irritating? And then it ends with like them having really serious discussions about like whether or not therapy is helping them and whether or not going on medication is a good decision or not. <laughs> it's all the same themes, but explored in a different and exciting and entertaining way. And at the same time, all the work that you've done, not just on Brains and Sam and Pat, but Ace and Anxious, Buy-In, that all fits into your personal individual style as a filmmaker. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's it it's you can definitely tell when it's me at the helm. And I like that like that. That was true even when I was a prose writer. Actually, uh, one of my my favorite professors in college, who was my uh, creative writing prose teacher, um, who was my thesis advisor at the time. She was also one of the reasons why I got into screenwriting, because she she really loved my work because it was very wacky and different from what everyone else was writing, because I was I was definitely more of a comedy person even back then. But I remember her saying to me in class one day, Brie, I love reading your work but it feels like a bunch of very distinct characters and voices having very funny conversations in the dark. Because one of my biggest problems with prose writing is that I never did description. I like I didn't care what the room looked like or where people were. I was like, I just want to get to the conversation parts. And when I realized that I wanted to go into screenwriting, that made so much more sense. I was like, oh, it's because I don't care about that kind of stuff. I want somebody else to take care of that. I want to just say they walk across the room and that'd be fine. I want to get to the dialogue parts. And and so, you know, that centering storytelling on conversations and arguments and dialogue has always been a strength of mine. And so it I feel so at home with screenwriting. I can't believe it took me this long to figure it out. I think in terms of the descriptions, the scene descriptions, you only write what's really important, what's really necessary, not like what clothes they wear or the style of the room that they're in you know i just the important stuff yeah i just want the room to be there i want you to just assume like it's a room figure it out because like on screen if i write a conversation and it like takes place in an apartment then like a whole crew of people get to make that apartment for me like you know allison's dorm room for example in brains like that is one of my favorite pieces of production design that we've ever done because it was so specific to that character and it informed so much about that character and i wasn't a main driver of that like we had two wonderful production designers paid Schumacher, who also did our uh, zombie makeup for season one, 
um, and who ended up doing Sam and Pat uh, production design in season two. And then she was actually assisted in the first season by James Worth, who was originally the act, uh, the actor behind Damien, but that fell apart for various reasons. But anyways, the two of them made the Allison brain set. And then the script, it was just Allison is in a dorm room. And it's very colorful. I don't think there was a lot of description about like what her dorm room looked like. And so those two people built that of their own. They had this great idea where, you know, she's stuck on this college campus, has been there for like three or four years and not really being able to go outside. And a lot of people had left. So what is she going to do? Well, she's going to probably go from room to room and find the cool posters other people had left up and steal them for her own. But then, of course, it's the apocalypse. So a lot of them are a little bit ripped or like you know, crumpled, or she's maybe written on them. Like the phrenology poster uh, is my favorite piece of production design of all time. And it's still hanging in my home. It's the one where it's like the different, I, I don't even know what phrenology really is, but like it labels parts of the brain with some, you know, hippie bullshit. And so Allison, or in this case, Paige Schumacher, my production designer, actually relabeled all of the parts of like the classic phrenology poster to be actually accurate to a human brain, which is, you know, Allison's whole thing. And she's a neuropsychologist. And I love that piece of detail because Allison absolutely would do that. She would love the poster because it was colorful and it had a brain on it, but she would hate it because it was inaccurate. So her her relabeling it and still displaying it in her room says so much about that character. And that's something that I'm not interested in like writing down. I love the fact that that got to be something that we worked on together and that somebody else put into place. I like, uh, and, and then in terms of like, you know, where characters are in a scene, I love letting the actors take a hold of that. I love when I'm working with someone and I'm like, you know, as a director, I'm like, all right, where would your character go throughout the scene? Like try to find things to do around the room and then let the actor kind of take where their character is going to go in the, the moment. And so like all of that stuff that I wasn't interested in writing in prose is stuff that other people who are more skilled at me in those things get to do in film. And I, I get to just like let them work. And it's such a wonderful example of collaboration. Like that's, I, I never used to like group projects until I got into filmmaking. And then I realized the collaboration aspect of this is the best part. I love that I get to give everyone like a starting place with the script and then watch what they do with it and build the script around them and build the direction around them and watch this like fun idea I have get transformed by 10 other people having expertise in things that I didn't even consider making it even better. I just, there's nothing like it. Your approach to directing is one that emphasizes not just the written word in a script as we've been talking about, but also camera placements and the individual performances of each actor. What is it like working within that approach? I know you described some of it earlier, but what is it like working within that approach and how have you applied it to both your on-screen acting and the other actors that you've worked with? So yeah, I love directing. I if I had to do only two things, I would be a writer director. I would never act again. I would never edit again. I would never produce again if I could just write and direct for a living. I love writing it because directing is very much like the second phase of the writing process. Like in film, they say the, the script, the first version of the script is written by the screenwriter. The second version of the script is written by the director. And the third and final version of the script is written by the editor. And uh, since I do all three, I tend to have a lot of control in my my sets, but I I really enjoy the, the directing part. I consider myself very much a an actor's director. Like camera placement is something that I consider and I've gotten certainly better at in terms of making distinct choices with, but I 
I, as a director, really like to rely on my director of photography for that kind of stuff because I don't have a visual sense as much as I have a narrative sense. So my concern when I am on a set is the uh, making sure that the emotions and the exchanges happening between the actors feel honest and feel like energetic. And I'm concerned with making sure that like the narrative of what is happening in the scene carries over to the, you know, the, the, the overarching thing of the story. So like, you know, the camera, I'm not always good at where to place it, but I have a sense of like, I want this to not be stable. Like I don't want it to be on a tripod because this character is feeling very unstable right now. So like, those are the sorts of choices I tend to make when I'm directing is like, how the camera can emphasize what the actors are doing. But when it comes to directing, I very much mostly focus on actors. I love having rehearsals. I love doing table reads where I get to talk to the actors about like, what do you think you're thinking here? What would you have said if this person didn't cut you off? What are you thinking when this person is saying this? Like, I love just hearing from them as their characters and working with them on making sure that every choice is motivated. I, I'm a very much of the belief that if something is on like camera, there should be a reason for it. I don't like throwaway scenes. I don't write things just because I think, oh, this might be funny. I try not to direct something just because like, oh, this will make one person laugh. Like if something is on camera, if it is in the background, if it is in the foreground, if I am seeing a character react to something, if they are in frame, there is a reason for it. And there is a storytelling purpose to them being there. So what is it and how can we work together to figure out like, how to maximize this portion of the screen. You know, like I don't want to waste anyone's time and I don't want to waste wonderful performers on, you know, just if they're not talking, we don't see them. Like sometimes the greatest performances you see are the ones of the actors who aren't talking during a scene, you know, that they're just reacting to someone else. Sometimes that's where the most powerful stuff comes from. So those are the things that I tend to like focus on. I also will say I've only directed myself once um, in, I directed one episode of Brains during season two. It was an episode that was mostly the characters Carl and Damien, but I have like a little almost cameo appearance at the end uh, in my own show and I hated it. I hated directing myself. That show was hard to direct yourself in because it's, you know, all one take. So I, like we had to do two to three minutes worth of acting, then cut. And then I had to watch all two to three minutes of it back to see how it was. And the, the scene that I happened to be directing myself in had a lot of movement and a lot of moving parts to it and a lot of people talking over themselves. And we didn't have everyone's mics on because we didn't have enough microphones to go around. So it was this whole, it was an absolute mess and I hated it. And I, I don't, find myself comfortable enough as a performer to want to direct myself. I can direct other people, but I don't have the perspective to be in a scene earnestly and also give myself notes afterwards. I, I like working with a different director when I'm performing because I can just put my trust in them and let them make those decisions. Because when I'm acting, I already have a hard enough time focusing on what I'm supposed to be doing. So if I'm also directing at the same time, I'm definitely not going to be in the moment. And that's not fair to my scene partner. So I have never directed myself after that uh, and hope to never do it again. Uh, I'm also, the the two things I've directed that I haven't written that I've been really enjoying doing, uh, I directed a seven episode web series called Better With You for the Apple Juice Production Women, which I, I think you have actually interviewed before. 
um, Kaylee and Amanda. And then I also recently stepped in to direct uh, the last three episodes of a show called Rosalie, which is pretty new. And it's actually written by a former student of mine. She developed the pilot for the, the Rosalie show in my web series class. It was the first class I'd ever taught. It was the class that I developed brains in a couple of years earlier. And uh, she decided to keep filming it the same way that I did. And uh, midway through asked if I would come on as a director and editor for her uh, because she's a, a writer performer. And uh, that has been really, really rewarding. I, I find I like directing other people's work more than I like producing it because directing, I still get to kind of be in charge. <laughs> and I get to like collaborate with really talented writers like Amanda Taylor and Selenia Lugo, um, you know, Better With You and Rosalie respectively. And I get to collaborate with them on the intention of their script and help kind of rewrite it in the production phase as director and, and work with them really closely as performers as well to like tell the story together. It's been really, really fun. And speaking of education, of course, as you mentioned, you've taught people about creating web series, writing web series as an adjunct professor of both LIU Brooklyn and Stevens College. How do those opportunities come about and what have you learned from working with and teaching your students about how digital media and the craft of screenwriting for web series works in both theory and practice. Yeah, so this is another thing that sort of happened by accident. So I, my first teaching job was through LIU Brooklyn, which is also the program that I attended. So when I, I graduated back in 2016, and then two years later, the person who had been teaching the web series class that I took when I was a, a student uh, was vacated. So that, that professor left and um, they asked me to see if I was interested in uh, in teaching the class since I had, you know, not only taken it, but had gone on to create n a number of other web series. And I had worked uh, at both MTV and then at Starable um, working with digital content creators. And they were like, honestly, you're probably more qualified than anyone else we've had here because there aren't very many people working in web series and making as many as you are. So, um, and because they already knew me, the people who, you know, worked for the program because they had taught me as a student, it seemed like a pretty natural fit. So that was the first thing I did. And then the uh, Stevens College opportunity popped up because the director of the or the new director of the LIU program, uh, Ken Lezebnik, he was also directing another MFA program. And they were looking for thesis mentors for students who were looking to write a web series script for their MFA in screenwriting program. And he was like, this is it's it's low residency, so you can work from wherever. And it's just, you know, once a week you, you know, collect with connect with your students, read their work, give them feedback, that kind of a thing. And so it was pretty much just like a slightly extended version of what I was already doing. Um, and because he already trusted me from my LAU work, it seemed like a natural sort of jumping off point to be like, yeah, sure, I'll, I'll do this. And that actually, right before I got on this podcast, I was sending my stu uh, Stevens College students notes on um, on their final scripts. So uh, once we get off the, the call, I'm actually going to go back to that. So I'm, I'm teaching right now. This is considered teaching. And I, I really enjoy it. I, my grandmother will love to hear this, um, but I never wanted to be a teacher. I was not interested in that. When you go into a writing or English focus in college, everyone from your hometown is always like, oh, so you're going to be an English teacher. And I'm like, no, I'm not going to be an English teacher. Uh, but then this happened. 
I will say, I don't I don't want to be an English teacher. I like the type of classes that I teach because they're highly specialized and focused on something that isn't really taught. There aren't a lot of like web series specific programs. There's more now, but like I am I think one of the few people in the country who's teaching this specific type of course. Um, in like traditional media programs. And that's really fun. Uh, you know, it's it fun to be, be highly specialized. And also the two things that I teach um, are highly practical, practical. So like we don't talk a lot about the theory of screenwriting. By the time that students get to me, they're graduate students. Many of them are in their 30s. So they're even older than I am. So like all of them know how to write. Broadly speaking, I don't really need to reteach them how to write. I need to teach them how to translate what they know how to do on the page into a practical real world like version. Like it's one thing to write a scene that takes place at a club with, you know, hundreds of extras. And it's another thing to say, okay, where are you getting all these people from? What club are you filming in? How are you going to get all the lighting right? How are you going to get enough equipment in there to cover the scene? And like actually like working with students to marry the concept behind a scene that they've written and then actually practically bring it to life with the limited resources that they have available to them. That's really what my focus has been is like being trying to make them realistic about what they can physically produce and what the benefit of producing that will be, but also not wanting to stifle their creativity to the point where they just write, you know, to to want to be actors in an apartment web series because there are about a billion of those and we certainly do not need another one. But like, I, I really try to get them to think about like, you can tell your story, but you might need to change how you tell it based on your actual like what you have access to. And that's not going to make it worse necessarily. In some ways that can make it better. Limitations should not be shackles. They should be opportunities to get even more creative. And so that's that's a big part of my like curriculum is trying to like emphasize being realistic with what your production availability is, but also still being as creative as they were in their original scripts where they had, you know, a club scene or things like that. That was things that I had to learn but learning how to be more creative with, within my means allowed me to do a lot more and allowed me to have a lot more control over my own career. Because especially writers tend to have this problem where they treat their careers really passively. They're waiting for someone else to do the work for them. They're waiting for someone else to say, I'm going to give you a bunch of money and, so that you can hire a crew to make this, or we'll pick it up and we'll produce it. Or, you know, you'll win this contest and we'll send it to someone else. You know, like writers have so little control over what happens with their writing when they're waiting on someone else to get involved. But if you as the writer can be empowered from a filmmaking perspective and learn the aspects of it yourself and learn in like a controlled environment so that you're the first time out the gate, you're not like paying people a bunch of money, but like you have a chance to like learn what this is like in a school environment, like what we do. I, I think that it gives them a lot more power over their own career because when you just write something and hope someone likes it eventually, then you're going to be waiting for a while, even if you're the most talented writer in the world. So I think there's something really powerful, especially in working with writers, about giving them the tools that they need to just go out and do it. And it might not be very good at first. You know, there are things about the brains pilot that, boy, howdy, I wish I could change. But I could not replace the, the power that getting to make brains gave me as a writer. When I write something now, even if it's a little bit out of my means, I know that if I just rewrite a little bit, I could make this myself. And if I so choose, if I 
am obsessed with an idea, I don't have to wait for anyone else to tell me it's time to do it. I don't have to ask anyone else's permission. I just do it. And that is a really powerful feeling, especially when you're so used to the passiveness of a writing career. Since the vast majority of web series run at lengths that are traditionally shorter than a typical TV episode, have you been teaching your students about how to work within the short time constraints of the format? Yes, definitely. We we talk a lot about how to, because a lot of students, especially in my LAU program, because they're, they're doing so much other writing and pilots, sometimes what they'll do is they'll say, oh, I'm going to adapt my long form pilot into a web series. And I'm like, we can try that. But I think you're going to find that you're going to get frustrated by the short runtime. And what you're going to end up doing is just cutting your pilot into six parts. And that's not the same as writing a web series. Writing a web series, it should feel at home having only five minute episodes. Like the narrative arc of your pilot, your 30 minute pilot needs to exist in your five minute web series pilot. It should not just be like constantly to be continued because that's not gonna be satisfying for people. Uh, but we also talk a lot about like what happens afterwards. In both of my programs, uh, I make it a requirement that by the time they're done developing their um, their script idea, they also need to present and um and uh, execute at least one transmedia idea. I really try to focus on transmedia, not because I think that it's necessarily the most relevant thing anymore, unfortunately. I'm very sad that transmedia seems to be a little bit falling by the wayside in terms of like a focus for productions. But what I think that transmedia and like making them think, think about transmedia ideas does is it forces them to reconcile the fact that this is not a mini TV show. This is a web series. It's going to exist on the internet. So what does that mean for the way in which people experience it? And what can that do for you in terms of opportunities in storytelling? How can you continue this story in ways that aren't just, you know, 20 more minutes per episode? Like what else can you do to be really creative and be really true to the fact that like, this is a web series. We're not shying away from it. We're not ashamed that it's gonna be on YouTube or Vimeo. We're excited about it because of all these other things that we're able to do. And so I really try to emphasize the fact that like we're not we're not just doing tiny TV shows. We are doing web series and that the, the rules are different and that's cool. And that's that's also powerful because, you know, there are things that you can do in web series you can't do in bigger TV shows and vice versa. And I don't think that it makes sense to just try to do the same thing in every format because that's not going to be like it's not going to be satisfying. Nobody is going to be satisfied if you are doing a 10 hour movie, but in two minute chunks, <laughs> like it's not going to be the same. But when you really emphasize the power of those two minutes that you have and make it feel like you're not trying to trick us, then that can go a really long way. Moving on to your work with filmmakers, before we get into your time with Sterable and Seed and Spark, which you are doing now. You also spent time working for MTV, first as a research intern, then as an executive assistant in the special projects department, and later as an associate producer for digital development. What did your work there, as well as the people you worked alongside, teach you about the inner workings of the entertainment industry and how interconnected it is to social media? Well, what it taught me is that I didn't want to work for a big corporation. I loved my time at MTV. I met a lot of wonderful coworkers there and like getting to work at MTV was a great resume builder. <laughs> it's always impressive when people can say like, oh, you were an associate producer at MTV. Like that looks good on a resume. But ultimately what it taught me is that traditional media 
trying to move into digital spaces is doing it all wrong. Like MTV, when I was at MTV, I was only actually in charge of like creating content and helping people create content for nine of my months there, but I worked there for about a year and a half. And in those nine months that I was an associate producer, I only actually produced one project to completion. And it was a two and a half minute interview with a woman uh, that had to come out right before the election, otherwise it would be irrelevant. And so like the necessity of the timing of that video is the reason it came out. And we worked for like three or four weeks on that project. But I I spent a lot of time pitching ideas. I spent a lot of time researching ideas and writing scripts and doing interviews with people, but I never actually got to complete anything because the 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 what the gears of old media are too slow for the digital landscape. They were trying to treat the production of short form digital content like they would a 20 minute pilot that was going to be broadcast on television, but the rules are totally different. And when you are putting that little content out there that's original, then all the all the YouTube channel was was like recaps of Teen Wolf, which is fine. But if you have an entire group of people who are willing to create short form content specific to the web, you can't hamstring them with the same like endless meetings and endless bureaucracy as you can with something that's going to be broadcast with totally different rules and is way more expensive. So it just, it was so slow trying to get anything to happen. And then you had so many different layers of people that you had to get approvals from who would give you notes and you would redo it and you would go to them and then they would ask why it was different from the first time, even though they were the ones that gave you notes. It was so hard to get anything done and it was awful. And I I love the people that I worked with, but we were constantly running into walls with like executives who came from more traditional backgrounds because, you know, they didn't have the pressure of moving fast, but ultimately that is going to be their downfall if they don't figure out a way to make digital content in a sustainable manner. Like I I think of MTV as like the anti-Bon Appetit. Bon Appetit is a like perfect example of when a big media corporation that got, you know, cut its teeth in the traditional sense had like a print magazine and an online version, but how they, it kind of stepped out of the way to allow the digital team to really take over and find its own voice. The Bon Appetit videos are one of the best things on the internet. And the fact that it came out of like a hundred year old, like print magazine is incredible. MTV was always on the like cutting edge of stuff, but they quickly were outpaced because they tried to just be the same thing forever when that's not how it works. And it's certainly not how it works in the internet. You have to back up and rethink how the machine works because digital production has to move faster, has to be more flexible and has to develop its own voice that is distinct from its, you know, overlord's voice. Even though they're going to need to sound similar, it needs to be on brand, there needs to be space for it to develop its own talent. And I don't think MTV ever did that really very well. And it's a shame because MTV has all of the elements that it needs to be successful in a digital space. But the machinery that runs its digital side, or at least when I was there, was so stuck in the past that we couldn't get anything done. So they brought me on because they knew I did web series. I was hired partially because of my work on brains, uh, because they knew that I could produce really successfully on my own for very little money. But then they didn't let me produce because we never got anything done. So that's really what MTV taught me. In addition to your filmmaking and acting work, you spent two years as the community director for the web series aggregator Sterable. 
and now you're the community director for fundraising platform Seed and Spark. Talk about your work for those companies and how it's helped to support, educate, encourage, and promote the work of indie filmmakers, including yourself. Yeah, so similar to the reason I was hired initially at MTV, uh, I was hired at Starable because I kept harassing CEO Ajay Kishore at his uh, monthly happy hours, where I, I, I went to the second ever happy hour that he held just to like meet local web series creators in New York, um, because I was a local web series creator in New York. And hey, somebody who's aggregating web series is going to give me attention? Heck yeah. And I was always early because that's just who I am as a person. And so it was always just me and Ajay for like the first 15, 20 minutes of all of these happy hours and um i would just talk his ear off and like he needed the information because he is not himself a creator and his company was still pretty new and so out of our conversations i would be like oh you know you should write this or like you should have a blog about this or he'd be like can you write the blog? And I was like, sure. So like after the first time we ever met, I was already like writing pretty consistently for Starable. I was writing blogs on the literary web series world. I was writing blogs on like using Twitter to get ahead because uh, for better or worse, I am obsessed with Twitter. And after like the third or fourth time that I had met Ajax, I was only meeting him like once a month, but I was doing so much just like free work. He was like, I think we need to talk <laughs> because you seem very interested in this and you clearly have like insights that I do not have because I am not a creator in this space. What would you say about coming to work for us? And it seemed like a great time because I had literally just been laid off from MTV. So I, uh, I joined at first as like a unpaid kind of consultant where I would continue to write articles and just sort of like give advice to Ajay and his uh, head of technical stuff, which is his real title, John Langhauser. Like the two of them were really terrible for a long time. John built the website, Ajay did the business stuff. And uh, because I was like the ideal user of their platform, I just gave them a lot of advice early on about like, oh, I think that it would be more helpful to me as a web series creator for, you know, this to function this way. Uh, and then I kind of grew out of that because it became very clear like, I needed a job and they needed more hours from me. So I joined part-time for a little while. And then finally in, I think, August of 2017, I came on board full-time uh, as their community director because what they really needed at that time was just someone who understood the community that they were serving. Like they had done a good job of building a platform that like, robotically auto like aggregated a bunch of web series content from around the world, but they didn't really have a good way of connecting with their like users, you know, they had aggregated web series, but they didn't actually know who they should be talking to to move forward. And it was me coming on board that kind of pushed them in the direction of we need to be talking specifically to the creators of these web series, not necessarily the fans, because the creators are the ones that are going to be connecting with the fans and they're going to be the ones bringing them in. So uh, my job as community director was really being the voice of the people, <laughs> as it were, uh, writing a bunch of practical blogs, eventually hosting a podcast of practical advice to help web series creators, you know, make better and more effectively. Uh, I helped launch and moderate our community forum. In some ways, I still moderate. I'm still going on there and unlisting things that are not appropriate and uh, responding to people's questions with links to other resources. Like, I don't work for Starable at all anymore, but I built that community with them and I have a vested interest in their success. You know, I met a ton of great friends through being the manager, director of that community, yourself included, Chris. So, you know, I, I loved being a part of it. I loved getting to build it from the ground up. And I, yeah, most of, like, it, I could go through my job 
like what I did at my job, but it's really just, I created content for the purposes of strengthening at the web series community that we were building. And that was really my focus. And then when I transitioned to Seed and Spark last year, late last year, I was basically offered the opportunity to do what I was already doing at Starable, but for all filmmakers. So not just web series creators who I will always love and will always be first in my heart, but for short film creators and feature filmmakers. And that was really exciting to me because I had done so much building up this one specific subset of creators and to give get the opportunity to work with not just them, but even more creators and get to expand my own filmmaking horizons and work with people on getting themselves like funded and working in that space was really, really exciting to me. So I made the switch last September. And I'm I, technically my title at Seed and Spark is the film community manager, so not director, but I'm functionally doing a lot of the same things just in a more like direct capacity. Um, and I am loving it. I get to do a lot of the same things. I'm teaching classes, I'm writing blogs, um, I'm talking to people all the time, but it's it's a slightly more established company, which has been really interesting. You know, I'm not so much building something as I am managing an existing group of connections and people and trying to help shape those partnerships and those relationships to be more effective in the future and to, you know, push what we already offer even further to make more working filmmakers. Two more quick questions just to close the interview. Sure. What other projects are you working on at the moment, even though everything's pretty much at a standstill given where we are with COVID-19? And what advice do you have for filmmakers who want to chart their own path in the industry? Yeah. So I'm not really working on anything right now. Something weird that happened is that as so many other people are heartbreakingly getting laid off or getting their hours cut, I'm working more than I was before the pandemic because the the ways in which we've had to pivot at Seed and Spark, I find myself working more hours in the week than I was prior. So I am busier than I've ever been. And, you know, we're, we're nearing the finals period for Stevens College, which I'm still working for. So like, I, I don't really have time to do anything. We have one more episode of Rosalie left to go, um, the sixth episode of the first season. So I'm hoping that some restrictions get lifted so that we can go back to that. That production is pretty low key and pretty small. So we're, we're hoping that it'll be safe sooner rather than later to actually get to finish that. Um, that's the one of the shows that I'm directing and editing. But uh, in between that, I'm just really, I'm just trying to keep my head above water. I'm not really working on anything. I have a new web series that I've written that I'm working on honing right now um, that I would love to have time to get back to. But boy, it is just not the time. I'm just... <laughs> I'm just not in a good place to, to be creating right now, but I'm doing my best to facilitate other people creating. And that's been really my focus in my teaching and in my work at Seed and Spark. I just am trying to give other people the space that they need. And I'm hoping that soon I will get that space too, but it is not that time yet. And then in terms of advice for uh, upcoming filmmakers, my advice, I always feel bad because I've done a lot of podcasts and my advice is always the same, but I think it's good advice and it's what I did. So I, I guess I have to fall back to it. But my advice is always just do it. Just write something and film it. Even if it's something you never show anyone else, even if it sucks, even if it shows you, oh man, I <laughs> this is not the genre for me, like whatever, it, it's not a failure. Making something is never a failure, especially when it's your first thing. The only reason I am where I am today is because I 
got too big for my britches and decided to produce a super expansive, ambitious web series with my friends. And it sucked at first, and then it was great, and then it sucked again, and then it was great. And I learned so much, and I lost so much, and I gained so much, but the only reason that I am anywhere is because I decided to just start doing it. There is, I, I've talked about it a little bit earlier, but like, you know, I mostly am friends with writers and I talk to writers and I am a writer and we have this tendency to just like sit in place. We can produce a lot of work uh, or, you know, we can write a lot of scripts, but like they don't go anywhere because usually we have to wait for someone else to tell us, yes, it's time for your script now. But I'm a very impatient person and thank goodness because if I had continued on the path that I was on just waiting for someone else to say yes this is good enough we're ready for you now I would probably still be waiting but taking my career into my own hands taking my work into my own hands and saying I think this is good and I want to see it <laughs> this is I wrote this because I want to watch it so if no one else is going to make it I'm going to have to make it myself that is such a powerful feeling and it's not going to be good immediately. But if you keep at it, if it's something that you find joy in, then you're going to unlock something in yourself that you didn't realize you had before. And the more people who can feel that way, the more people who, you know, are going to be in a better place than they were before. So just go out and make it. Great way of looking at it. Brie Castellini, thank you so much for coming on the Viewfinder podcast today. Where can people contact you on social media? Ooh, you can find me at Breezone World on every platform, B-R-I-S-O-W-N-W-O-R-L-D. Um, I was very consistent at branding, even at 13 years old. So you'll most often find me on Twitter, but I am on Instagram occasionally. Um, and I would love to hear from you. So please tweet at me. Please follow me. <laughs> Someday I'm going to get that blue check mark on Twitter and it's all going to be over for you guys. But until then, let's keep building together. But yeah, you can reach me there. You can see more of my work at BrieCastellini.com. Um, that's where you'll find all the quotes that Chris has been reading throughout this podcast that make me seem like an insane narcissist. But you can find links to all the work <laughs> that not. I do there and um, and more insane narcissistic things, as well as previous interviews that I've done with Chris just in text. Uh, BrieCastellini.com is where you can go for all of that. You're great in everything you do, and you are definitely not an, a narcissist in any way. Uh, I'm a little bit of a narcissist, and it's fine. It's fine. You know, high self-esteem is important. Because if you're going to put yourself on the internet and put yourself in a position where lots of people are going to send you very mean things just because it's the internet, you know, you got to have some belief that you're in the right well, anyway, Bree, again, thank you so much for coming on the Viewfinder podcast today to talk about your career, your work, and I wish you nothing but the best of success with everything going forward. Well, thank you, Chris, and thank you so much for having me. This was really fun. It was, and I really enjoyed it. Well, thanks. Till next time, I'm Chris Hadley. Thanks for listening to the Viewfinder podcast, and please stay safe and stay put.